Robotic process automation involves the scripting and automation of highly repeatable tasks. RPA tools such as UiPath paved the way for a newer wave of automation, including the Robot Framework, which is an open-source system for RPA. Antti Karjalainen is the CEO of Robocorp, a company that provides an RPA tool suite for developers. Antti joins the show to talk through the definition of RPA, common RPA tasks, and what he's building with Robocorp. Antti, welcome to the show. Thank you. Let's start with a simple question. What is robotic process automation? Yeah, that's a good question to start with. So robotic process automation, essentially, it's about automating business processes through kind of normal user interfaces. So getting rid of repeating monotonous tasks, basically. That's the simple answer, I think. Well, describe some of those tasks, the problems which RPA solves. Well, RPA can be used in so many different ways. Essentially, anything that you can document, you can automate, basically, with RPA. You know, So you can think about like customer service tasks, setting up new customer accounts or deleting old ones, creating new bank accounts and, and so forth. But then again, it can be used to solve you know, more IT-related tasks like troubleshooting. For let's say you have a cloud app that goes down and, and you get a monitoring alert, you can set up a robot with RPA to troubleshoot some of that. So essentially, any task that is repeatable enough so that you can describe it map it out in a process description, you can go and automate it. And I think one of the key things to highlight in RPA is that it's always sort of agent-based. So you have this software robot, as we call them, that will perform those tasks. So obviously not, not every task is, even though it can be done with RPA, it doesn't mean that you should do it with RPA. But wherever you need this kind of agent-based approach for automation, that's a good fit for RPA. Can you Explain in more detail that example you gave where your server goes down and you you use an RPA tool to boot it back up. Why would you do that? I mean, it sounds like just a problem for a script to solve or some kind of Terraform thing. Yeah, sure. I mean, that's the case for if you don't have the need to use RPA. But let's say you have an application that's running on your private cloud somewhere and you need to let's say, validate that it's functioning accordingly. You can think about it like your typical test automation use case in that scenario. And in fact, a lot of RPA tools have been evolved from test automation tooling. So you can think of it as almost setting up like an end-to-end test in that scenario. So what are some of the popular tools for performing RPA and how do they vary from one another? So... RPA has started, these tools have been started already a long time ago. So I think the market leader is is now called UiPath. And then there are various others. I think right now there's more RPA tools out there than ever before. There's kind of a boom in them. And how they differ is that the traditional approach to RPA is based on this kind of programming model where you use a visual interface to build the automation. So you drag boxes and draw arrows between them and and set it up. So most of them actually use Windows Workflow Foundation to do that as the baseline. But that's kind of the traditional RPA approach. And there has been kind of this idea in the industry that, you know, anyone could do it, essentially, that, you know, even business users could start using these RPA tools and start automating their own work. But how the industry has evolved, it turns out that RPA isn't actually that simple to pull off, at least in more sophisticated use cases. So you tend to have dedicated RPA developers who work 
with building automation. So our approach at Robocorp is to actually build more developer-oriented tools, kind of fully-on developer tools for people who build RPA as their living. And so that's kind of the, the big difference in the kind of old generation and what we're doing. What does that mean, developer tools around RPA? So the kind of the core of what we do is based on an open source project called Robo Framework. And that's a Python-based tool. You can create Robo Framework scripts with just a regular IDE or any text editor for that matter. So we support VS Code through an extension that's coming up out shortly. Or then we have a dedicated development environment built with Jupyter Lab that's customly built for RPA use cases. So it's really good for iterating through various automation tasks and fine-tuning them. It has a dedicated user interface for finding UI element locators, etc. And that varies from the UI path or the traditional RPA tools in that those require more of a human-based training approach, right? Yeah, I mean, the traditional approach is to use this kind of visual representation of a process and automate it through that. But I see kind of many parallels with that approach that we had in, let's say, C++ software in the early 2000s. You used to have these UML-based applications that you define a UML diagram to essentially code an application. They were kind of popular for a while, but never really took off. And I think that's a good reason why this didn't take off in that time, because it turns out that the people, we have a really good set of tooling for writing code and working with code. So why try to figure out some other new way of essentially writing code for RPA specifically? Why, why is RPA somehow different? So we just go with code instead. It's obviously a code that's purposely built for automation tasks, but nevertheless, it's text form. Now, I used to use a tool called WATIR, W-A-T-I-R, Web Application Testing in Ruby. And this was a thing where I would write scripts to, for example, do automated testing on a form or text boxes and enter in basically QA testing. And you could script up QA testing. How does that differ from what you're talking about? It's actually strikingly similar on the technical level. So this leads up to the backstory behind Robocorp and, and what we're doing is that I had a background with this open source project called Robo Framework, which is essentially a test automation framework written in Python, open sourced in 2008. It's widely used, very kind of generic and keyword driven, pretty solid tool and has a stable user base. So when I first saw RPA, I wondered exactly, like, how is that any different from software testing, QA testing? How come is RPA different? And when you look at it from the surface, you kind of see these tools, these companies advertising things like AI and you know robots doing stuff by themselves and self-learning and so forth. But when you actually go like on the technical level, you realize that, wait a second, this is actually exactly the same thing as you would see in QA testing, typically. The technologies that you use to access these interfaces are exactly the same. Where you have differences is actually on the management layer of these robots. So so it's, you have different kind of use cases in RPA that you don't bump into in testing world. 
and that's where it starts differing. So you need to manage these scripts differently. Then they they don't live in a CI server somewhere and, and run like over and over again the same thing. And in RPA space, it's actually a problem when something fails. In testing, you kind of want the thing to fail. So the, the, there are many differences when you get into the nuances. But on the kind of on the bottom level, in how you automate something, that's strikingly similar. When looking at what you've built, it also looks like the interface is a little bit different. It's more it's more of a declarative interface rather than like a scripted interface, right? Yeah, yeah. So you typically write things like open browser, you know, navigate to some page and, and download a document, open the document, you know, read an Excel file, send a bunch of email, et cetera, these kind of things. Oh, so it is still imperative. It's just higher level. Yeah, yeah. Robot Framework has these keywords that consist those tasks that perform the automation. So it consumes this keyword syntax, and they are essentially functions. But you write them in a way that kind of makes sense in a human human language way. So when you start automating something, you, you kind of write a story. So you describe it like to a summer trainee, essentially. And then you break those sentences into these keywords that that perform subtasks, and those can break into subtasks, and those can break into Python functions underneath. Let's talk at a higher level for a little while longer. So who is using an RPA tool in an organization? That's a good question. So kind of the hypothesis has been that your average business user would use an RPA tool. But like I said, what's happening in the real world is that you'll have dedicated teams of RPA developers who build that stuff. And, you know, smaller companies might use an external service provider who maintains RPA for them. So so you have people who offer this as a service-based model. I'll come to your company, automate your payroll, monthly payroll processing, and maintain it for you for a couple of hundred bucks per month. And you end up receiving kind of the automated results of that work. So that's one model. But then, yeah, it's, it's dedicated RPA developers. Payroll automation, that's interesting, I guess, because like if I go into ADP, ADP is like a really complicated interface, and it's kind of this old legacy interface thing. I could easily see wanting to script something over that and make it higher level. Yeah, definitely. I think the first task that I automated for myself was, you know, logging my hours into Oracle NetSuite when I was working at a at another company. So I didn't want to go through NetSuite at the end of each week myself. So I just scripted that and automated the way. There's a lot of these kind of sort of low-impact things that are around everywhere. And then there are like really high-impact things, like let's say like financial institutions, where you have to go through like millions of records. And some people are actually doing it by hand as their job. Could you define the requirements for building an RPA tool in more detail? Like, what is this kind of tool, what does this kind of platform have to satisfy? Mm-hmm. So we need to have, firstly, the developer tools, obviously. So something that you used to build for us is it's those, whether it's VS Code or Jupyter Lab-based IDE. And then you need to have these kind of interfaces to different underlying technologies. So you need to be able to interact with the browser. There's many good tools for that, like Selenium. And and then you need to be able to interact with, let's say, desktop applications. You might need to 
be able to do image recognition-based things for Citrix connections or some applications that are difficult to instrument otherwise. So you'll have an image recognition-based component that can handle that. And so the list goes on. So you constantly come up with new things where you need to integrate to or new, more convenient building blocks for your users. That's the developer tool side. Then, you know, you go into package management and these kind of things. We leverage the kind of normal developer ecosystem. So obviously we, we recommend using Git for package management or handling sort of teamwork and this kind of thing, not, not packages necessarily. And then uh, another large component is going to be the way you actually operate and orchestrate, run those robots. So when you've developed something, how do you share it? How do you make it run in a company? You know, you need to schedule it if it's something that runs by itself, or then you need to distribute it to users if it runs in a, as we call, attended manner. So if it runs as an assistant on your computer. So those are a bit different use cases. And so this orchestrator is a platform that allows you to distribute your robots and operate them in either as an assistant mode or in the background, in the kind of back office duties. So this orchestrator platform is actually quite complex and has a ton of features that are pretty common in the industry. So the ability to manage work queues for the robots, you know, pass along data between robots, uh, store secrets that the robots are going to use because you don't obviously want to store any passwords or usernames in the robot source code. And the list goes on. So the open source platform advantage seems to be because there's a lot of domain-specific robotic process automation scripts you might want to write, like things in GitHub are all similar, things in Trello are all similar, things in ADP are all similar, and you can imagine wanting tool suites for each of these different verticals. Yeah, I mean, all of those could be, you know, driven through APIs or just the browser. So the way we look at it is that you kind of cover kind of the major technologies that way. So, you know, API-based automation, that's given then browser, then desktop applications. At some point, you want to start building, let's say, Salesforce libraries or NetSuite libraries, some really big applications that a lot of people use. So it might make sense to combine multiple technologies like APIs and, and the browser and, and build something cohesive for Salesforce specifically. And with Robo Framework, the benefit there is that it has been used for over a decade in testing. So you have this vast amount of different technology and domain-specific library sets that people have shared and passed along. Okay. Well, as we're talking about an individual RPA task, what is the input and output? What can we expect from a typical RPA task? Yeah, so you can define input as a user. So you might give a customer number that it needs to process or a document or something like that. It doesn't need to do so. But typically, you'd want to give some specific information like that as an input. And then a single task can, you know, as you could imagine, do do all sorts of things that it has been told to do. And the output might be data that it passes along to another robot. It might send an email. It might give a notification. It might just pass and succeed that silently. It really varies according to your, to your specific need. Okay. So RoboCorp, as we've described, is an RPA tool suite for developers. Can you say more about how that target customer, the developer being the customer, how does that change what you want out of an RPA tool? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that kind of changes a lot of things. We don't emphasize as much the kind of ease of use aspect. It kind of sounds weird, but you know, we don't try to play down what it's like like to build an RPA task. It can be easy. It's not like rocket science or anything, but there are some complex things that people are doing with these tools. So we want to give them tools that are powerful and have a lot of expression. So the tools that don't get into your way, but instead tools that allow you to combine them in ways that we couldn't even imagine. Just as an example, I think today one developer in the community shared a project that he had done and he had integrated robot framework with Bugsnag, the service, for logging errors and keeping a track on their robots' daily tasks. And that's something that we didn't kind of, we hadn't have been able to implement that kind of functionality yet inside our cloud, but he gone and used an external service to provide it. And that was pretty cool to see that, you know, our tools are flexible enough for people to start, you know, doing things that we didn't think of. So that's really one key area where, where I think it, it differs. We don't have this unified messaging that, you know, everyone should become an RPA developer as some of the other companies out there. How do I describe an RPA task in RoboCorp? How do you define a, an RPA task? You set up a new project. Let's say you're using the lab. You create a new project. You'll import a few libraries depending on, on what kind of tasks you want to do or what kind of technologies you want to interact with and write star, 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 tasks, star, 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 and then start writing instructions. Uh, you might use building keywords, some library keywords that you have available, or you might define your own keywords. So let's say that you start with open browser, obviously opens the browser, then you'll start defining your building keyword, log into NetSuite, and then it goes on from there. That keyword should then probably type in a URL or navigate to a URL and do some logging tasks. That might lead you to use Vault, which is in the cloud, in a cloud service that can provide you secure storage of user credentials, and you'll use another library to access the Vault and so forth. That's kind of the basic process. Can you give a few more examples of tasks? There are so many type of different tasks. I usually say that they're kind of snowflakes. Each company and each user has their own particular need. And one company actually was the company that had done the Bugsnag integration. They they used RPA to automate the process of, of doing online store purchases in Japanese websites. That was a good use case, I think. And so they are kind of the typical financial institution use cases that you could imagine that let's say you need to update a lot of customer records at once and, and people are calling in you know on the phone and you know updating let's say their phone number for your records uh, you might use rpa to navigate through your internal applications that you use for customer records and, and go through let's say multiple locations where you need to update that particular in- information that's one use case that i saw and It was actually done in so great volume that the bank that did it said that they saved what it was like seven years of customer waiting time on the phone by automating that process. Very impressive. And when a task is processing and it fails in the middle, what happens? Yeah. So typically you probably want to retry it. So just 
get the input that you had and retry it if that's how you configure it. You probably want to notify somebody, so you, you send out an email or alert through some other service desk application. And depending on, obviously it kind of depends on why the failure happened. So was it a business exception? So you know the application that you were automating did something wrong or then your data was incomplete that you used or something like that. So that kind of guides you. If it's a just a flat-out failure, just exception, uncaught, then you probably want to <laughs> get the developer to look at it. Does something happen like when the UI of the website changes that can sometimes mess things up or do most of these sites tend to keep their UIs static enough that your tasks don't go out of date? Yeah, so there's a bit of art to that. So you want to try to use locators that are more stable. So if you if you use like absolute XPath references, those might get messed up pretty easily. If you use like local element ID, that's more stable. So typically, yeah, sure, I mean, sites changing, that's an issue for RPA. You can do some things as a developer to make it more robust. But ultimately, if your site ends up changing completely, there's nothing that you can do about it. Typically, I tell people that, you know, if you have the option, just use an API instead, because that's more stable. Always go where you have the most stable route. Tell me more about the libraries that are built into Robocorp. Yeah, so we are we are actually developing a fairly large library that we call the RPA framework. And that consists of of your basic toolkit essentially that you need as an RPA developer. So you'll have things for the browser, things for desktop applications, image recognition, you'll have integrations with all the major cloud platforms, AWS, Azure, Google Cloud, and probably forget like 80% of the stuff, but we, we keep adding to it like multiple times a week. We come up with a new release that adds new functionality to the RPA framework right now at the moment. But yeah, it's a multitude of different kind of keywords that you categorize by different technology domains. There are lots of APIs out there for machine learning. Tell me about how machine learning APIs can be used with Robocorp. Yeah. So the industry term for that is intelligent automation. And you typically call RPA intelligent as, as soon as you hook into some machine learning API. But sure, I mean, the kind of the basic, I think, most frequent use case is to do something like send a document to AWS Textract or other similar Google Cloud Vision API. You have, a let's say, a PDF invoice and you want to extract some data out of it. You can easily use these kind of cloud services to do that for you if you don't want to try to do it locally. That's, I think, the most common use case that I see all the time. When an RPA task gets spun up, what is actually happening on Robocorp? Yeah, so when an RPA task gets spun up, kind of if you look at the architecture that we have with the cloud platform, we have what we call the workers. The worker is essentially an application that's installed in the target system. So it can be on your laptop, it can be on a virtual machine somewhere, or it can live inside a container that we can host for you. So depending on where the worker is, but let's say that the worker is, is on my laptop. What happens is that the cloud will send a package of code and some instructions to the worker. The worker will get the package, unpack it, and, and then initiate a fresh Conda environment 
for all the Python libraries that you have inside your robots code. And then it'll kind of start fresh every time to make sure that you don't have any side effects from previous executions. And then when you have your environment done, it'll execute the task, stream the console trace to your cloud account, and then when it's done, it's going to stream your execution artifacts. You might have produced some documents, or you at least have a log file. It'll stream those to the cloud and report the results of the execution. So a lot of a lot of the stuff that we provide is really the ease and convenience of just you know, you want to run Python-based robot framework automation. Good. Just install one app in the target environment, log in, and you're good to go. You're all set. You'll have a stable execution environment each time, and it's pretty fast too. And what are you using under the hood to orchestrate these tasks? So the orchestration service on our Robocop cloud is... We are working actually mostly serverless. So it's on AWS. It's pretty... There's no, like, we're not using any ready project to set up the orchestration, the scheduling and those, we do it ourselves. And then it's a fast-growing platform of different features. So so it's one of the core pieces that we develop. Well, can you tell me more about that, the serverless orchestration stuff? Like, how much can you offload? What kind of leverage do you get by going serverless? What does that look like? So we started developing that early 2019. And at that time, we made the decision to kind of go as cutting edge that we could because we had the opportunity. So my VP of engineering just made the decision that if we don't have to host anything by ourselves, we, we won't do it. And I know we might have a few servers here and there, but mostly it's, it's 100% serverless. And the idea there is that we, we should be able to scale up pretty nicely with that decision. Obviously, you're going <laughs> to gonna always have some some issues here and there, but for the most part, we think that that will allow us to maintain a certain level of, of service as we continue to grow and scale. And, and really, some of these processes are pretty business critical to companies, so we need to be careful with operations. Tell me more. I just want to know more about your infrastructure. and like, How are you using Lambda? Are there any other serverless services that you'd like to discuss? Well, I mean, it's a, it's a typical host, but really I'm not too deep into ar- architecting our cloud service. So it's basically like SQS, DynamoDB, Lambda. All around we use Epsacom for monitoring, Datadog as well, I think. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it's a complex and growing piece of software. What programming languages do you use? Uh, mostly JavaScript, TypeScript. Hmm. Are there any other cloud services you use? You mentioned Datadog, anything else? For the SaaS apps that we use, I think we are getting segment now into the mix. Can't remember. There's a long list of this, but trying to figure out which are particular for the product side or the operations side. And we use linear for backlogs and these kind of things. Kind of fairly standard sort of SaaS stack altogether. I mean, the company is pretty young, so so we've gotten to choose kind of the best that they are out there right now at the time. What has been the hardest engineering problem to solve? I can't name as sort of one particular, because we actually have, yeah, I think the hardest part has been kind of to manage how big our product is, essentially. We have to cover a lot of ground. So we are developing three things at the same time. We have our learning hub, learning resource site, Robocop hub. We want to get 
user-generated content there as well in the mix. And so we have that going. It's the simplest part technically. But then we have the developer tools. We have Jupyter Lab that has its own ecosystem and kind of own conventions and everything related to that. We are developing on it. Then we have VS Code that we support uh, command line tools at the same time and then all the libraries that we developed on the top of it. And then we are also active in many open source contributions. We recently came up with a language server implementation for robot framework. And now we're building a proper robot framework debugger as well at the same time. So that's one side. And then we have the cloud platform as well and the workers that we distribute across and the cloud is just a large product as itself. <laughs> so I think managing all that, trying to keep some sort of focus, that's the biggest challenge. Yeah, you've got a really wide platform at this point. Yeah. Is it challenging to maintain all that stuff? Because are there things, are there parts of the platform that get out of date that require continual maintenance? Or do you feel like you're more consistently building new things? I'd say we are building new things. It's not like we would have to stay on the sort of latest and greatest with some sort of technology. So we don't need to follow that much. Obviously, as things progress with, but, you know, things like browser automation and that kind of things, they really don't move that fast and we leverage other projects there. So the Selenium project is is maintaining the web drivers, for instance. We benefit from that. And now we're actually coming out with a new browser automation framework altogether based on Microsoft's Playwright. And that's exciting to follow. So we kind of leverage a lot of things that happen around us at the same time. And we also are lucky to get some community contributions as well. That's starting to happen, which is exciting. So I didn't kind of highlight that our developer tools, everything that we build under the developer tools umbrella, that's open source. So we benefit from a lot of things on that side. Tell me about the companies that use RoboCorp. What problems have they solved? So right now, we have to distinguish between using RoboCorp and RoboFramework. So RoboCorp is fairly new to the game. So we started 2019 and we got funded by the kind of towards the end of 2019. So we, we've been able to ramp up some of the operations just last December and January. So we just came out with general availability of our products on July 1st, and we are going out with our paid offering on October 1st now. So there's a limited set of, of real-world projects that I've seen, so I don't know if I've seen every project that there's out. But then there's kind of companies that have already, prior to Robocop, started using Robo Framework for RPA. I was kind of initially involved in pushing RoboFramework, the project on the open source side, to become an RPA tool. And I know of many companies that have already adopted it by themselves and built tooling around it. But now for RoboCorp, I'm seeing things that are built, let's say, for automating tasks in the healthcare sector in the U.S. One company in the Netherlands, they were doing automation for general practitioners, for doctor's offices. And we don't usually go into super close details with our users when they have client projects because they might, might have limits to what they can disclose. But we try to keep tabs on a lot of them. Tell me more about the community for RoboCorp and the surrounding open source projects. Yeah, so, so Robo Framework itself, that actually, the project started at Nokia early 2000s and, and was open source in 2008. 
And in 2015, we created what's called the Robot Framework Foundation. It's a non-profit organization that supports the project financially. We have, I think, close to 50 member companies there that contribute financially to the development of Robot Framework. So we have, I'm actually currently on the board of, of directors of the foundation. So that's one big community. We have a forum and active Slack workspace and the core robot framework tool gets downloaded around 5 million times annually at the moment. And then, then we are building the kind of RPS-specific community inside Robocop. So we have, have a Slack workspace as well and people are sharing their ideas and you know, asking for help and you know, providing these cool projects that they are doing on the side there. So that's one thing that has been really exciting to follow, just being there and, and watching how the RPA-specific community has started to grow and thrive. And kind of the first people inside that community have been this kind of early adapter, smaller boutique consultant companies that I'm personally kind of been following that trend. So you have these people who might know about software engineering or know about RPA automation, and then they discover Robocop and see that they could actually make a career for themselves in, in building stuff for others with our tools. So, so this sense of enthusiasm as, as people are finding it. How do you expect the RPA world to change over the next five to ten years? Ten years is a long time. Five years is also quite long to predict, but I'd say that open source RPA technologies like Robocop, they will definitely change the the business model. So we are taking the business model actually to consumption-based model at Robocop. It used to be so that you'd buy these licenses for robots. So essentially one execution environment that is allowed to run an automation task that would count as a robot and you'd pay like 15,000 annually or something ridiculous to that tune for the privilege of being able to run it. We are coming up with the consumption-based model where you actually pay for the execution time of the robot in cents uh, rather than committing to huge investments up front. So I see that that model is going to bring RPA to kind of down market from the large enterprises. We are actually starting, we see ourselves starting like bottom up, so going to smaller companies then building up instead of like we don't really do too much enterprise stuff right now. So that's going to be a trend. But then kind of looking at the largest perspective, we had Microsoft entering the RPA space quite recently with an acquisition. So that can be something that changes the landscape quite a lot depending on how they play it out. I just see that the use of RPA is going to go more and more mainstream. People are going to discover more opportunities out there. It's going to become widely accepted as you start having these smaller players who offer it as a service to other companies that you you just hire somebody to automate your accounts receivable or what, what have you. Do you have any other predictions for the future and things around software development and how software development might integrate with RPA more intimately? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty pragmatic in that way that I don't generally encourage people to use RPA where that's not necessary. But I do think that there's interesting use cases for agent-based automation that we haven't fully discovered yet. And one thing that I'm following closely that I'm seeing in my email inbox is kind of requests as people want to integrate RPA into their products. So people see that they have 
let's say a SaaS application, and they they could actually benefit from being able to provide their users with RPA-like functionality. So we have been extending our cloud API that allows companies to do that. And I think that that can actually be sort of a bigger change in how you, as a developer, somebody building a product would perceive RPA if you're able to use a set of convenient APIs to integrate software robots into your own product offering. What about the intersection of RPA and higher level or no-code applications? No-code or then you have low-code sometimes. It's a good question. What I'm seeing is that you have a ton of these workflow automation tools, sort of Zapiers and these kind of things that you, you can use to automate. Like you have an you know API call that provides some data and then you transform the data and call another API, that kind of thing. Those are useful and will continue to exist. Those won't replace RPA though because you often want to have in a specific task that kind of agent perspective and the ability to go into your local infrastructure. So as I mentioned in the beginning, you can have this robot act inside your private cloud or even on your own laptop. You can have that with sort of online workflow automation tools too easily. But obviously you can have that if you use our cloud API and you can you can use our service to integrate that way. But so kind of RPA, I see that it still continues to be its different thing. And in many cases where you have this kind of fantasy where you would be able to build up processes without writing any code, you end up kind of bumping into the model's limitations really easily. And you need to have the sort of expression power of code to cover all your bases in RPA. It becomes pretty complex pretty fast, and then you are in a low-code tool and try to write like C-sharp in a dialog box somewhere inside of a visual tool. Really not optimal. So we could talk a little bit more about the interaction pattern with RoboCorp. I think we kind of glossed over this. If I'm writing a task in RPA or, or an RPA task in the robot framework, what is my experience in the IDE? Like, what am I actually doing? Yeah. So that would be typically you're writing keywords and finding UI locators. So you would use this UI locator tool there to inspect your application that you're automating, finding the relevant locators, and then using them while you write your keywords. So click a button, navigate to this site, and so forth. So that's kind of a typical workflow we try to make it easy and sort of fluent. You might have workflows where you do something on the web, for instance, where you perform some action, like navigate somewhere, fill in some forms or whatever, and you record those actions into keywords. That's so often, we have a lot of record and playback test tools, but they've never gained too much popularity because the end result becomes pretty brittle. So even if you use something like that, you need to go through it, comb through it, and use your own judgment where you need to modify the script and where you where you can improve it in some ways. So as I mentioned, there's a bit of art to building RPA, how you structure your robot task and how you structure your locators and, and so forth. So, But that's kind of the main activity there, being able to inspect your application describing your actions that you need to perform in the application and then iterating and iterating. And we try to 
make the iteration cycle as easy as possible inside our developer tools, obviously. All right. Well, to close off, what have you learned about management and managing a large team, division of labor? I mean, you're the CEO of this company. I'd love to know more about what you've learned. Yeah. I mean, a lot of things, obviously, over the course of of this one and a half years that we've been running the company. I started early 2018, so I've been at it at this for many years already, even before the company was formed. But we went from six people to like 35 in in matter of months after the funding because we knew that we have so much things to build. And right now we are at 42 people, I guess, and we are spread out remotely, so almost as a fully distributed team. So that that layers in uh, kind of one additional aspect that we need to consider but I, I think there's no particular thing that I can highlight, but a, sort of a million smaller management insights and, and trying to constantly read management books and you know use our board as an asset to learn from them and use other people around me as an asset to learn. It's, it's going to be a constant journey, I think. Antti, thanks for coming on the show. It's been great talking to you. Thank you.